Amen. You hear a lot about the word culture. We use it often to refer to pop culture or popular culture. We talk about the demise of our culture. We talk about what's wrong with our culture. The word culture has various meanings like most words and if you look it up in the dictionary, culture is used of the arts and other manifestations of human intellectual achievement regarded collectively. And that's a fancy way of saying this, that people that visit museums have culture. People that listen to opera have culture. They're cultured individuals. So if you talk about somebody being cultured, you mean they have a certain amount of dignity, refinement, that they're into the arts, and that is often used in that way. Most commonly, it is used in, in the customs, the arts, the social institutions, and the achievements of a particular nation, people, or other social group. In other words, when we talk about culture, we talk about the way people live in a certain society. The, um, the word that is used in the Bible that is sometimes translated nations. It's often translated Gentiles. Sometimes it might even uh, be referred to as, as Greeks or Hellenists, but what sometimes even people. But what the word is is ethnoi. It's where we get the word ethnic from. But ethnoi really doesn't mean people that live in a certain geographic location or behind certain boundaries. It means the way of life that people had. So we're living in a day because of television and the internet and uh, social media and music and all of those things. We're living in a day where a teenager in Douglas, Georgia, or in Coffee County, can have more in common with a teenager that lives in Atlanta or New York or L.A. than they do with their own mom and dad. They have more in common because while you may say, well, we're not dealing with the kind of culture they are in L.A. Well, we're not dealing with the kind of traffic they are. We're not dealing with some of the, some of the means they have. But I'm going to tell you, our children are influenced by the same cultural understanding and proclivities that t kids in L.A. are. And I'm going to tell you, I, there's a lot of, I hate to say this, but I don't even understand what they're talking about half the time. I'll be honest with you. But it's a cultural thing. So when we talk about culture, we usually talk about that. But there's another use of the word culture that my friend and fellow minister, Tawana Bennett, shared with me the other day. And I knew this, but I'd never heard it applied this way. And so she kind of inspired me to do a little, little research on that. And that is that culture is also used in biology or in medicine. And a culture is when they take certain samples from you and they put them in a petri dish and they cause them to grow and they're able to see if you have some type of bacteria, if you have some type of infection, if you have some type of virus, they can detect it. If there's cancer there, they can detect it because they have created a culture. By that definition, culture is this. Culture simply means this, the conditions that are suitable for growth. 
In that definition, culture is a condition that has been created that is suitable for growth. We use that word all the time. We don't even realize it. Because in our community, we are by and large an agricultural community. What runs Douglas is agriculture. Farmers spending their money in Douglas, right? That's the main thing that we have in South Georgia is agriculture. That comes from two, two words. The one word agri simply means field, like a field that you plow. And of course the word uh, culture, which means to grow. That's what it means in the root of its word. So when we talk about agriculture, we're talking about plowing a field. We're talking about fertilizing a field. We're talking about uh, making sure that we spray pesticides on the crop. We do everything that we can to create a culture that crops will grow in that field. We talk about horticulture. Crystal has a hobby, and that is that she likes to get out in our yards and work. And often I am the subject of ridicule and disdain because people ride by and they see Crystal out in the yard working and they say, that old sorry preacher, he's too sorry to get out there and work. He sends his poor old long-suffering wife out there. I know what you don't know. I know that she's in the yard to get away from me. I'm smart enough to figure that out. She enjoys that. But when you work in the garden, you call it horticulture. Hortus is a word that means garden. So to make the garden grow, that's a horticulture. So culture is a place where things grow. It's very interesting what they do is there's a substance that they smear on. It's almost like a jelly-like substance that they smear on that Petri dish. And it's actually called agar agar. Kind of sounds like a character from Star Wars, doesn't it? But it's agar agar. It actually comes from red algae. It's a substance produced from red algae that is conducive to make whatever bacteria or infection or virus grow. Now this can be something that is good, beneficial. It can be something that is bad. It, it can be something that helps to find the cure or produce the cure for some disease, or it can be an indicator that that disease is present in a body. But whatever, for good or bad, that culture is something that is growing. It's a condition where there's growth. One of the things that we use more commonly than we even realize that we use is yeast culture. The chances are you are probably eating yeast without even being aware that you eat it. Now, people like me, if I try to do something in the, in the kitchen, I buy self-rising flour. I don't buy all-purpose flour. I'm not going to mess around with measuring baking soda and all that kind of stuff. I buy flour that already has the yeast in it. It's already there. I don't even think about it. Now, the, the King James word for that is leaven. But that's all it means is yeast. It sounds somehow more holy when you call it leaven or unholy when you call it leaven. And what's interesting about that is that leaven most of the time in Scripture is used as a negative. Leaven is usually used indicative of 
sin because the characteristics of sin match the characteristics of leaven. It's actually got kind of a, an, interesting, um, an interesting background to it. Initially, at the first Passover, the uh, children of Israel and what God commanded them were not that interested in having pure bread without leaven. What it was is that they had to flee so fast that they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. And so God told them, don't put leaven in your bread. Take that bread, that unleavened bread, because when I'm going to rescue you, you don't have time to wait around waiting on bread to rise. But as they begin to feast the Passover in subsequent generations, the understanding of leaven became something that they would always, they, it was not unkosher for them to um, eat leaven all year long. They didn't have any prohibition against eating leaven except when it came to Passover. And to this day, when Orthodox Jewish, observant Jewish households celebrate Passover, or they, uh, when, they, when they celebrate the Seder meal, in preparation of that, they play a little game where their children, where their children scour the house to get rid of all of the leaven. Now you may say, well, just get rid of all the yeast. No, you got to get rid of milk because milk can turn and become leaven. You got to get rid of the eggs because eggs can turn and become leaven. You got to get rid of the cheese because the cheese has had bacteria introduced into the, the cream to make it become cheese. So they, it's, it's far more than just unleavened bread. They scour the house to get rid of the, the leaven. And of course, Jesus, when he celebrated uh, that Seder meal, that Passover meal with his disciples, he added something new to it. When it came time for him to take the unleavened bread, he took it and broke it, but he said, now listen, there's something special we're doing here. This is my body, which is broken for you. Because Jesus is the only one that has ever lived in flesh that never sinned. He had no leaven about him. Well, leaven has become then synonymous uh, many times or indicative of sin. And there are certain aspects about leaven or yeast that fit with that. Number one is yeast is, is so small it is practically invisible. It's practically invisible. Jesus said in this parable, there was a woman took and hid yeast in three measures of flour. It's hard to detect. You don't see it coming. How many know with me that sin is not just something that you do. If they were to take and imprison us, take away television from us, put our hands and our feet in locks and chains, put us in a completely dark room without any contact with any human being, all that we had was enough bread and water to exist and enough oxygen to breathe. How many knows that we could sin right by ourselves in that room cut off from all society, we could still sin, right? Because sin is something that happens internally. 
The action takes place because of what's, what takes place on the outside because of what's taking place on the inside. And then sin is also just like yeast or leaven. It is infectious. That, one of the definitions of that means likely to spread or influence others in a rapid manner. You might use the word insidious. It works slowly but surely. Have you ever seen somebody that uh, in the, just in the gifts that God gave them physically were handsome or beautiful, they were attractive people, but they took the wrong path and they lived in sin and sin little by little robbed them of their beauty, robbed them of their vitality, robbed them of their zest for life, Right? And not only that, I, I said it halfway joking tonight, but I saw a couple of our ladies out in the foyer that I hold in, in high regard. And I said, you know, it's amazing that I often see people that I hold in high regard talking with each other. But it's also true that the people I hold in low regard, I usually find them talking to each other. Right? That fellowship kind of seeks its own level. That, and that brings us to the fact that there is the influential nature of leaven or yeast. It changes whatever it's introduced into. And sin will change you. It'll change your likes. It'll change your dislikes. It'll change your way of thinking. It will change your mindset. It will change the things that you love. It'll change the things that you hate. It changes you. It get, it's not, sin is not, and here's the thing people need to understand. People get so caught up in the activity of sin, and they act like that the activity is no big deal, but the problem with sin is sin has a way of worming itself in and wrapping itself around and growing in your heart and mind till it changes the very essence of who you are. That's what sin will do to you. That's what sin will do to a society. That's what has happened in our culture. We have created a culture where sin has been free to grow. We've created a culture where immorality and evil has been left unchecked and allowed to grow. If you put in television uh, shows and in movies uh, and in literature and you put it enough and you're exposed to it enough, you'll start saying words that used to make you blush. You'll start condoning activities that used to vex your righteous soul. You'll start compromising and sliding. You'll start making excuses for yourself and for others. I don't want to be harsh because there are other sins besides this. But it's just such a part of where we are as a culture that it's so obvious that you just have to mention it. When I was a child in the 70s, there was a show called Three, Three's Company. It's a man living with two women. It was a funny show. I don't understand the morality of this. But... Uh, out in California, his, uh, his landlord wouldn't let him live with two women if he was straight, so he pretended that he was gay. And we all laughed. 
And we laughed. And then Ellen came out and had a, had a sitcom, and she came out at the end of the sitcom, came out that her character was gay, was a lesbian. And then they had, a, had a, a, an America laughed. And then we had a sitcom, Will and Grace, that the main characters, the, the status of the show is that one of the main characters was gay. And then we had a show called Modern Family that normalized two men raising a family together. One big happy family. Would you believe me if I were to tell you that our state overseer told me that we have a church of God pastor in, in another state who's pastoring a church of God whose wife left him for another woman and he is pictured with her and her girlfriend and their children and he has on a shirt that says families come in all shapes and sizes. I'm not trying to hurt anybody by saying this. We all have friends, loved ones that are impacted by that sin like we do friends and loved ones that are impacted by sins of greed or lust or heterosexual sin. But I'm saying that our culture has changed and reversed its mindset. People point to Bible-believing Christians as bigoted as if somehow we've just begun to teach against sexual sin. We've not changed. The Bible's not changed. Society changed on us. Why? Because there was a culture created that allowed it to grow. And if you start filling your home, and I, I am not, listen, I am not advocating a return to legalism that we live by rules and regulations, but I'm going to tell you what. If you're taking your children or your grandchildren to see movies or watch it on your TV at your house that have 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 F words in it, don't you spank them when they say the F word. You created a culture to let that grow. You did that. If you're letting them play games where they're, they're first person shooting people and there's blood splattering, don't you be so concerned when they're in a fight in school. You created a culture that allowed it to grow. If they're listening to music that glorifies violence and uses terrible, sexist, misogynistic language that puts women down and calls women by the name of a female dog and then all of a sudden you're going to turn around and tell them they ought to treat women like their sister. You created that culture. Amen or oh me. Well, I didn't mean to preach on that, but that's still pretty good preaching. Amen. But that's not the only leaven. Now, this is the level we got to watch out for because I'm preaching to the choir now. On Sunday night, it's a good chance to preach against sin because people that come on Sunday night generally living right. But that's not the only leaven. Jesus said you better watch out for the leaven of religious people. He said you've got to watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because a self-righteous religious, legalistic, harsh, judgmental attitude acts in the same way that sin acts. It starts off in, almost imperceptible. 
I am amazed. I'm confounded. I have, I have, been, I have been in licensed ministry. Licensed ministry for 32 years. I, I have been preaching for about 35, 36 years. I have pastored, with the exception of about two and a half years, I have been pastoring for, uh, what is it, 23 years. Evangelized six years before that. I ain't just started doing this. But I'm going to tell you, in all of that time, I still can't understand how a person can be saved from the depths of sin. I mean, I ain't talking about that they cheat on their taxes. I'm talking about they sinners. And they can be saved. And within two months' time, they know more than the Sunday school teacher. They know more than the deacon board. They know more than the pastor. All of a sudden, ain't nobody righteous enough for them. I'm leaving this church. Y'all ain't living righteous enough. You ever seen anybody like that? I have talked to people that stayed at home because they couldn't find a church holy enough for them to go to. Right? So, someone that I've used this before, and I don't, I'm not trying to speak ill of them, but I, I'm always... Uh, it just always tickles me about uh, about your aunt, about uh, Martha's mom. Said she didn't read the Old Testament. She didn't talk like that. <laughs> it is so almost imperceptible, but it gets a hold of you. That self-righteous, harsh, judgmental attitude. And it, it is infectious. It not only gets a hold of you, It'll get a hold of everybody else. It'll spread in a rapid manner and influence others. And it's influential. It'll take over a movement. It'll take over the church. Let me tell you that the answer to the immorality that plagues the church today is not legalism and religion. The letter kills, but the Spirit of God gives life. It's a return to a relationship of the Spirit of God that not only comes with His blessing and His power, but comes with His conviction and humbling ourselves under the mighty hand of God. And that leaven, what yeast does, what leaven does is it puffs up. And I'm going to tell you, it's wonderful that you pay your tithe. It's wonderful that you come to church it is absolutely wonderful that you, uh, you know, pray and that you give and that you do all of those things. That, that is great. But I'm going to tell you, if in doing all those things it makes you puff up, that's not relationship, that's religion. If you do all those things because it makes you look holier, because it raises your, you in the estimation of others, then the Lord says, you've already had your reward. Enjoy it. Because you're not going to get one from me. You've already got your reward. You say, well, that don't sound too bad. I'd rather be around a good religious person 
then I had a sinner, not me. Sinners are low enough to know that they are not where they need to be. Religious people have themselves fooled. And it was not the prostitutes. It was not the drunkards. It was not the lepers. It wasn't the, the, uh, the tax collectors and the publicans. It was the religious people that conspired to have the Son of God crucified. They were so holy that when God was here in the flesh, He wasn't holy enough for them. <laughs> Amen. If your holiness exceeds the holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, it might not be H-O-L-Y, it may be H-O-L-E-Y. <laughs> you got some holes in your religion. But Jesus said it's not just sin that acts that way, and it's not just religion that acts that way. Jesus said the kingdom of God itself has the same characteristics. That you can create a culture where the kingdom of God can grow. That you can create by the grace of God. There can be a culture created where the kingdom of God seems to start off invisibly. She hid in three measures of flour. Now when the Bible says three measures of flour... Let me tell you what that is. And I just found this out today. Three measures of flour is equal to 50 pounds of flour. 50 pounds of flour. And she just took a little bit of yeast, a little bit of leaven, and hid it in there. And that little bit of leaven, imperceptible, imperceivable, Almost invisible, but it was enough. Jesus precedes this parable with talking about the kingdom of heaven being like a mustard seed that's the smallest of all, all seeds. I've got a whole jar of mustard seeds in my office, and when I take out one, I, can't, I, I just lose it. If I drop it, it's gone. It's so little, it's so small, but there's such power in the seed. Power to reproduce, power to take over, power to influence. You may say, oh, that little prayer that I prayed for my lost youngin, that just seems so small. Seems like it's invisible, but there's power in it. Amen. Oh, when I did that little witnessing to somebody at Walmart, it wasn't much. I spent five minutes with them. What is that? When it comes to the problems of the world, it seems so insignificant, so small, so invisible. But little is much when God is in it. Amen. Because there's power. Listen, big things come in little packages. And she hid it in the flower. And you and I are part of God's kingdom. And he's got us hiding. We're, we're a sleeper cell. You know what a sleeper cell is, right? A sleeper agent. How that when you've got uh, terrorists 
that they'll infuse themselves into a society and they'll just stay quiet for years and years and years and years until their number comes up and somebody calls them and all of a sudden they're activated and I want you to know that we're God's sleeper cells. He's got us in the school systems. He's got us in the post office. He's got us in the government. He's got us at Claire's. He's got us at Walmart. He's got us in our neighborhoods. Somebody thinks, well, if you're really on fire for God, you ought to be a preacher. No, that'll kill all the enthusiasm you have. If God causes you to pre- calls on you to preach or to pastor or to evangelize, then praise God and what a great honor that is. But don't think that God only uses those that are behind the pulpit. All that we do behind the pulpit is try to give you the, uh, the education, the understanding, and the equipment so that when you go where God has you planted, you can bloom where you're planted. And if you're working in a pure-out hellhole, and you're trying to get out of there. Stop and think. If I go to where they're all Christians, they don't need me. But God has me strategically placed. I just seem invisible, insignificant. I'm just a little sleeper agent. But then the Holy Ghost calls and wakes you up. And you have a big impact where you've been hidden, where you've been placed. Seems to be invisible, but it's infectious. It begins to spread rapidly. And then it is influential. 50 pounds of flour with a little bit of kingdom leaven in it produces enough bread to feed 150 people. That's the way God's kingdom grows. Now you probably have heard this before. It's not a Original to me, it's one of those that has been used a lot. But uh, a son came to his daddy and said, Dad, I'm having a little bit of trouble in school, and uh, I don't know how to respond to it, don't know how to react to it. And he said, well, son, follow me. And he went into the, to the kitchen, and he said, son, I want you to get three pots out. I want you to fill all three pots about halfway up with water. And when they start to boil, in one of the pots, I want you to drop in a couple of potatoes. And then another one of the pots, in that boiling water, I want you to drop in a couple of eggs. And then in that last pot, I want you to drop in some coffee. He looked at his dad, kind of like you're looking at me. But he did it anyway. He said, all right, son. After 10 minutes, I want you to come back and look and check. And he did. And he allowed it to cool off. He said, take out those potatoes and tell me, what was the condition of those potatoes when they went in? What did they feel like? He said, well, Dad, they were kind of hard. He said, well, what were they like when they came out? He said, well, Lord, they, he said, Daddy, they were kind of soft and mushy. He said, that's the way some people respond to adversity. They go in hard and tough, but when the going gets tough, they get mushy. He said, son, crack open those eggs. They crack open those eggs and peeled them. He said, tell me about those eggs. He said, were they like that when they went in? He said, no, dad, anytime I've cracked open an egg, the yolk is just runny, soft, runny. 
He said, well, what, what's that yolk like now? The, what's the white like, the yellow like? He said, well, Daddy, it's been boiling 10, 10 minutes. That's a, that's a hard-boiled egg if I've ever seen one. It's hard. So that's the way some people are. They go into situations. When they go in, they're soft and pliable. But the stress, the problems of life cause them to be hard, rigid. He said, son, tell me about the coffee. He said, son, I want you to separate the coffee out. He said, well, dad, I can't tell what's coffee and what's water. Because the water didn't change the coffee. The coffee changed the water. And that's what, that's what God's called us to be. The flour doesn't change the yeast. The yeast changes the flour. Jesus prayed this way. Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but I want you to keep them from the evil that's in the world. God's not calling on us to allow culture to change us, but us to change culture. He's not calling us to allow people to change us, but us to change people. I don't want to talk too long, but you know, it's kind of what I do. So I remember when I was just a teenager, there was a, a Christian company that put out a Christian version of Archie comic books. And I loved them. When I was about 12, 13, I loved them. And I still remember to this day that it was one of those Archie comic books, they gave this example. They said, people are either like thermometers or thermostats. Some people are like a thermometer. When things get hot, they get hot with them. Some people are like a thermometer. When things get cold, they cool down with them. But other people are like a thermostat. They don't change with the temperature they change the temperature of any room they're introduced into. That's what God is calling us to be. God is calling us to be influential. You say, well, what can we do in this world? Well, let me tell you what the apostles did. Acts 17, 6 said they turned the world upside down. They started off, the disciples started off as 120 in the upper room. And before the day was over, they were 3,120. And by the end of the week, they were 5,000, 8,120. Here's the way Galatians 5, 9 says it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. <laughs> Amen. You can have an impact right where you are. Now, I went the other night, the other, uh, we were at Crystal and I were in Waycross, and if any of you own stock in this restaurant, please forgive me, but we went, went into Waycross to see Sherry the other day, and it was lunchtime, we went and got lunch, and we were thinking of something different to eat, so we thought, we'll go eat at Ryan's in Waycross. Now, I've eaten at Ryan's before, and I've eaten some good meal at, at, at different Ryan's restaurants. But uh, we, it was about 1240, and there were about four cars in the parking lot. We should have known. By the way, if you ever 
want a good place to eat, don't follow skinny people. <laughs> they don't know. If you see me going into some place, you can go and get some food, get some groceries. Said, you know, the rating was all right. The cleanliness was all right. I told, I told Chris, I said, I ain't heard good things, but we'll try it. We, we went and it, it lived up to its bad reputation. But one of the things I always look forward to at Ryan's or a, or a Quincy's or those, those kinds of restaurants is they've got those big yeast rolls. Oh, my word. I can make a meal out of those yeast rolls and butter. Right? I do. I make a meal out of them when I go. I eat, I eat three or four of them. Now, I eat my other stuff too. I don't know. But, I, but I eat three or four of them. We got, got them and they were this big around. And we bit into them and they were not fluffy. They were chewy. They were chewy. And it just wasn't that good. Now, I ate it anyway, but it just wasn't that good. And I told Crystal, I said, you know what happened? They didn't rise. They didn't rise. Can I tell you, God is calling on us to rise to the occasion. But then I got to think a little bit more about that. And I said, Crystal, I think I know what happened. Whoever put them in the oven didn't give them time to rise before they put them in the oven. Maybe they were in a hurry and they didn't want to take the time. I'm going to tell you that the kingdom of God is like yeast when it's introduced. But I'm going to tell you it does take time. It takes time in the presence of God. It takes time in the Word of God. It takes time in the house of God. It takes some time. You know, one of my uh, favorite memories, Dad, Dad retired at, at 50 and we were able to go on some family trips. And one of my favorite memories is we went to San Francisco and there at Fisherman's Wharf with uh, Alcatraz out in the distance out there. We, we purchased from one of those little stands there, we purchased some clam chowder that came to us in a sourdough bowl. Now listen, I ain't that big on soups and chowders. But when you let me eat the bowl, I can get through it. And here's the thing about sourdough that you might not know. This is just one strand. Now there was a guy named Isidore uh, Boudin who immigrated to the U.S., settled in San Francisco in the gold rush era. And in 1849, you know the 49ers, in 1849, he, he started his bakery there and he started collecting all of this bacteria that was in the air around the bay. He started collecting it because it's natural yeast. And the way you do it is you mix up a, a, a little starter of water and flour and just set it outside. Just let nature do the rest. And it collects in that. 
And it starts to, well, sour. Starts to ferment. But then you take that and you introduce it into the flour. And you knead it in there. And you let it rise. And he created sourdough bread. Now listen, that, that, that had been going on for hundreds of years. In fact, that taking a little bit of the bread that was left over and saving it for the next batch, they did that all through the Middle Ages. In fact, that was exactly what they did in Israel. But today, 160 years later, if you buy their brand of sourdough, you're eating a loaf of bread that from that original batch, they broke off a little bit and saved it to start the next batch. And then when they had the next batch, they broke off a little bit of that to start the next batch. And the line of that sourdough bread goes back to that original culture 160 years ago. So when this woman took a little bit of leaven and used it, to leaven that 50 pounds of flour. She was introducing into a current situation a historical reality. Here's the way Jude said it. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. What we have ain't something that we've heard some TV preacher talking about. It ain't something new that you heard Brick come up with. It's not something that's some new system. It's not Scientology that a guy that was a con, uh, a con man and a science fiction record just uh, uh, writer just dreamed up and now some of the wealthiest people in the world are following it. It ain't something that... that uh, you know, some polygamist came up with in the American West. It's not something that came from man, or man at all. It's something that came straight down from heaven. The revelation started when God revealed to Moses the creation of the world and had been passed down orally from generation to generation and the Holy Spirit's inspiration to Moses when he writes the first five book of the Bible and the Spirit of God moved upon holy men of old and they wrote as they were moved, born along of the Holy Spirit. Over 40 of them. Over a thousand years. And Jesus came and in Jesus he he fulfilled all of the Old Testament and took it up, that old covenant, took it up to him and created a new covenant with man. And the very people that walked with him and talked with him and saw him die and saw him rise again shared their story and gave us the New Testament of our Bible. And there are some people that make you think that somebody dreamed this stuff up in the Hills of North Carolina, don't you believe it for a moment? What we've got, the kingdom of God, is something that's been handed down to our generation. Boy, I, 
<laughs> I thank God that I had a great granddaddy that God saved him walking through the woods out of a drunk. I'm glad he handed it down to my grandmother, he and his wife. I'm glad Nana Peavy handed it down to daddy. I'm glad my great-grandfather on my mama's side that cut down the trees that made the first shingles that went on the first church of God in Homerville, Georgia. I'm glad he took little Isla Marie to Sunday school. I'm glad my mom and daddy didn't just talk to me about the Lord. I'm glad they lived it in front of me. I'm glad they took me to church nine months before I was even born. I'm glad I cut my teeth on the church pews. And I know it might have been a little bit radical, but I'll have to say I'm still glad that the first Sunday that my boy was on the earth, he was in God's house. I'm glad it's been passed down to me. What Paul said to Timothy, wasn't it? Timothy 1.5, he said, I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you. It dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and then your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded it's in you as well. But I learned something on the internet, so it has to be true. <laughs> Abraham Lincoln said you can only be, believe half of what you read on the internet. I found that on the internet. But I found this out about a yeast culture, about sourdough bread or any other kind of bread that's created in this fashion. That you can break off and store aside part of that dough to create the next dough. But that every once in a while, you've got to add what they call a refresher you got to put a little bit more water and a little bit more flour. And as long as you'll add the refresher every once in a while, it keeps that yeast, that leaven active. And I'm going to tell you, I'm glad of what was handed down to me. But every once in a while, I've got to have a refresher. I've got to have the fresh flow of the river of the Holy Ghost. I've got to have him bring some freshness into my life. So he's not just grandma's Jesus and he's not just daddy's Jesus. He's my Jesus. In fact, that's what Paul said the very next verse to Timothy after he said, I saw it in your grandmama, I saw it in your mama, I see it in you. He said, therefore I remind you Stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. He said, look, it's not just enough for you to be a guardian of the faith that's been handed down to you, but you've got to have an active faith and a refreshing of your faith so that it's active and churning and influencing and growing in your heart, your life, and to those in your circle of influence. That's the reason you're in church on Sunday night. I mean, my word. I'm looking at people across this room. You've been in church thousands of times. Thousands of times. I mean, my goodness. I've preached to some of you folks. I've preached to some of you folks 
1,500 times. If I preach 150 sermons a year, that's three, a, a little less than three a week. For 10 years, that's 1,500 sermons that I preach to you. I get sick of listening to me after 1,500 times, and I'm my favorite preacher. <laughs> what in the world are you doing here? You know why you're here? Because you said, Lord, I want to keep that leaven active. Lord, I want a refresher. I don't want it to die with me. I want to, I want to get under the spout where the glory comes out. I want you to keep pouring into me so I can keep pouring into other people. That's why you're here. Is because we all need a refresher. Because we are wanting to create a culture where the kingdom of God can grow. Amen. Stand across this building. Lift your hands. Let's just pray right where we are and then we're going to open the altar for us to get down individually with the Lord. But I just want you to lift your hands right now. I'm going to pray over you. If you're here and you're not saved, altars are open. I'll pray with you to be saved. But I want you to say this with me. Say, Lord, I've come for a refreshing. I'm thankful. Say it loud. Say, I'm thankful, God, for the faith that was handed down to me. I thank you for it, Jesus. But oh God, I've come for a refreshing. I need you to pour some water on me, Lord. I need you to keep me active, keep me stirred up. Stir up the gift of God that's within me. In Jesus' name, come from all over this building. Gather in the altar and let's seek the Lord until we feel the touch of heaven.